I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Nothing says imperialism will meet its limits like Iraq. Since the 19th century, as Iraq has stood out as the near-perfect example of what imperialism is, what it has wrought, and why it has failed so horrendously. So many perhaps unaccountable lives have been lost, and valuable non-Western cultures needlessly ravaged. And so many tragic examples, from the French in Vietnam and Northern Africa to the Belgians in the Congo and the Germans in the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as the European devastation of the nations of North and South America, ahem, what was gained and what was lost? How did a country like England, with its boring, tasteless cuisine, ever think they had a right to dominate and control the world? Is it possible that we may at last be entering the final stages of imperialism? How many times does this lesson need to be learned before we get that empires always fail? Though Iraq no longer has the news coverage it had during George W. Bush's insane war on the country, perhaps it should be no surprise that as 2020 begins, the country is in terrible turmoil. Amazingly, it seems the lesson formerly Great Britain and other imperial nations refused to learn is that other less militarily powerful and rich cultures and nations really don't like to be plundered. But plunder is the driving force of Western imperial history. Today, our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive is Eric Margolis, whose recent article is, is titled simply Plundering Iraq. Eric, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Good to be with you. Thank you. Eric Margolis is an award-winning, internationally syndicated columnist. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, the L.A. Times, Times of London, Gulf's Times, the Khalij Times, publications in Pakistan, Turkey, Malaysia, and other news sites in Asia, and is a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. He appears as an expert on foreign affairs on CNN, BBC, France 2, France 24, Fox News, that must be fun, CTV, and CBC. As war correspondent, Margolis has covered conflicts in, are you ready for this, Angola, Namibia, South Africa, Mozambique, Sinai, Afghanistan, Kashmir, India, Pakistan, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. And he was among the first journalists to ever interview Libya's Muammar Gaddafi and was among the first to be allowed access to the KGB headquarters in Moscow. A veteran of many conflicts in the Middle East, Margolis recently was featured in a special appearance on British, Britain's Sky News TV as, quote, the man who got it right in his predictions about the dangerous risks and entanglements the U.S. would face in Iraq. 
Well, I'll tell you, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. It may be a surprise to many, but the country of Iraq, where perhaps a million Iraqis, nearly 5,000 Americans died in just the American War, was not actually formed by its people. It was created by the victors of the First World War. But wait, that was in Europe, wasn't it? Well, it may be instructive for listeners to learn how the country of Iraq, its remarkably straight-line borders, came into existence. Tell us about that, if you would, please. The uh, Royal Navy, Britain's Royal Navy, was uh, at the end of World War One in the process of converting from coal to oil, much more efficient fuel. And uh, the British suddenly found that uh, there was oil in Iraq, uh, particularly in the northern portion of Iraq. So when they were divvying up the Middle East at the end of World War One, <clears throat> excuse me, they uh, decided to put the grabbers on Iraq as a potential very rich source of oil. In fact, it was far it was a far richer source than they even knew at the time. Uh, they created this what I call Frankenstein state out of the wreckage of the Ottoman Empire, which was haphazard but uh, nevertheless managed to keep the whole region together peacefully. The uh, British that created, drew with a thick pen the borders of Iraq, and in it they included a lot of disparate uh, places and peoples who were not friendly. For example, like Arabs and Kurds, Turkomans and Christians and Muslims, etc., etc. The um, they put, they created this artificial country. They pulled up, they came up with a king, Faisal, and uh, they, uh, most interestingly, ruled Iraq uh, f from uh, the one or two big air bases using the RAF, which was almighty in those days because it could strafe and bomb anybody in this open area. And they created uh, a puppet government and a puppet police force and uh, that was British Iraq. <laughs> well, as as Rocky so famously said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works, at least for not for a long time. But it did take a long, long time for the sun to finally set on the British Empire. You're right that... It, go ahead. No, no, it did. It's, uh, the British were very clever colonialists, and they not only were very effective, but they impressed the hell out of a lot of the colonized people who looked up to the British yeah. and actually thought that they were somehow uh, something of a superior race. Looking at England today, with Brexit, one would <laughs> not think that. No, for sure. Just look at Boris Johnson. My goodness. <laughs> and Well, as I said, the cuisine. I don't know. You know, it's as you write, the British were always masters of efficient imperialism. In the 19th century, they managed to rule a quarter of the Earth's surface. Such a small island. How was it that so many subjects across the globe, as you, as you say, often willingly cooperated? They ruled over vast numbers of people with minimal force. So what about this remarkable efficiency? How did they convince people that they were superior? Was it, I mean, they had a lot more guns. Well, first of all, the British the British knew about the countries that they were occupying. Uh -huh. The uh, the British uh, foreign ministry uh, was chock a block with experts 
uh, unlike the United States, States, which keeps invading and attacking countries that it knows nothing about. <laughs> uh, it's just a black hole in Washington. Kurds and Turks and Arabs, and it's beyond Washington's understanding. Yeah. But not Britain's. Britain's was very, very clever. And uh, in fact, I remember during the uh, 1890s, one of the British commanders, uh, when he went to fig- try and figure out the terrain and the deployment of enemy forces, actually disguised himself as a native, uh, put on a turban and robes, and drove rode through the whole region to get an appreciation of the tactical situation. I don't see too many American generals acting no. like this anymore. <laughs> No, they just kind of assume they're superior somehow, and it just amazes me how you know you can invade these countries and not know a darn thing about them or even care for that matter. Now, the current Israeli government is said to see the success of the white settlers in America as an example to be followed for their continuous expansion over the Palestinian people. You write in your last book, American Raj, uh, which I believe means ruler. You, you sought to show how the American Empire was using techniques of the British Imperial Raj employed in India to control the Mideast. Now we're, we're, we're seeing the same strategy in forgotten Iraq. A couple of points there. Why do you say forgotten Iraq? That's an important detail. It's completely dropped out of the news. Aside from yeah. recent riots uh, against the Baghdad government, uh, you read not, next to nothing about Iraq. Nobody cares about it. We've forgotten about it. But meanwhile, uh, the U.S. government uh, and industry uh, keep exploiting Iraq and, and taking away its resources and uh, pretty well control Iraq now, despite of the rioting going on. And tell us what old British imperial techniques the U.S. is now employing there. Well, the first was, of course, that dates from, from the Roman Empire, which is divide and rule. Uh, find disaffected groups and uh, make an alliance with them, turn them against the government, put them in charge. Uh, many of uh, Asia's problems today result from the British practice of doing this and putting minorities in charge, uh, mm-hmm. Sri Lanka being a perfect example. Uh, but India, too. And uh, the other thing is that they would create a very fine civil service. The British created uh, judicial tribunals where they actually had local officers riding around administering justice. And it was so much better than the local stuff Uh. where people would buy justice and stab people in the back. So there was an appreciation for the honesty and the rectitude of the British while they were still plundering these countries. Ah, well, that, that's a good uh, trade-off for them, I suppose. Why, you know, I'm trying to remember 2003, when somehow uh, uh, Cheney and Bush decided to invade Iraq. Uh, just, it, it amazes me. You know, I don't know if you, you've probably seen the movie Vice and sure know the story of it, where, at least according to the movie, Dick Cheney was tasked with making up a story as to why we invaded Iraq in reaction to September 11th. Uh, I believe the concocted story was that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was the leader of something called al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was very minimal at the time. So Cheney, as I understand, basically created the monster who had not been particularly important or powerful. 
from from what you know, what was the real reason for what you refer to as major Western aggression? Well, Cheney may have said this. It certainly was nonetheless totally true. Oil in Israel were the two reasons uh, that Iraq was invaded. Uh, first of all, there was the belief that we were at peak oil and that we were, oil was going to be declining and oil was too precious to be left to the Arabs. So uh, the Cheney, Wolfowitz, neocon crowd uh, wanted the U.S. to grab this oil and to make sure that we held on to it and that we would also crush uh, what could be an important enemy of Israel uh, because Iraq, as I saw myself, was uh, modernizing rapidly and becoming the most uh, high-tech or medium-tech Arab nation with a manufacturing capability. And uh, this was, the Iraqis uh, were not to be allowed to have modern equipment or weapons just the way the Saudis the, in 1917 we're not allowed to have artillery by the British. So we pick. Well, we pick and choose. And and it, did they intend to create a you know not exact? Well, maybe they did intend to create a puppet regime. Uh, and and it was Saddam Hussein was the head of Iraq for rather a long time. And I kind of thought he was had been a friend of the United States somewhat. You know, there was the war between Iraq and Iran. What what was it like uh, under Saddam Hussein? And, you know, what? so the pretext was the Arabs, we can't leave the oil to the Arabs and we have to protect Israel. But what about Saddam Hussein? Was he just something to, to blow through in the in uh, Cheney's uh, strategy of plundering Iraq? Saddam was a, a very strong leader. He was a dangerous brute in many ways. I, I was in Iraq, in Iraq a good deal, and it was a very scary place. They even threatened to hang me. Oh, my. Uh, when I was trying to find out about the condition of the Iraqi army and the uh, use of poison gas by the Iraqis, which, by the way, was uh, greatly exaggerated. The uh, Iraq was a modernizing country. There were full women's rights uh, higher education was developing rapidly, social services, uh, infrastructure, uh, this type of thing was moving very quickly in Iraq. As compared to America's satraps uh, like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, which at the time were quite backwards. Yes. Yeah. But uh, Saddam was got too big for his britches. Yeah. He was an American ally, all through the Gulf War, the attempt to crush Iran, which continues on to this day, mm, and he um, he was very useful to the U.S. When he was fighting the Iraqis, he had American military liaison uh, in Baghdad telling him where to attack using American satellite data, and arms were coming indirectly from the U U.S. or financed by the Gulf Arabs. So uh, he, he was uh, what was once said of Somoza, in Nicaragua, he's an SOB, but he's our SOB. Right, and Noriega was that too. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We use these people, and then when they're done, we throw them aside. As Kissinger once said, quite rightfully, I quote that in my book, American Raj, 
that uh, you know the only thing more dangerous than being America's an- enemy is being its ally. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Good old Kissinger. Oh my goodness! It'd be cynical to the end. Cynical to the end, and frankly, I believe a war criminal. But mm, probably he'll probably never stand trial. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, author, uh, reporter, Eric Margolis, whose recent article is titled Simply Plundering Iraq, uh, expert on a whole bunch of wars and traveled all over the world to places I've sure never been and probably would be somewhat afraid to. But uh, the threat of hanging you, eh, just an occupational hazard, I suppose. I don't know. What what about the oil? I mean, now there seems to be, you know, much more oil that the U.S. is at least allegedly uh, energy independent now. Uh, are we, the, the oil from the sands of Iraq, is that ending up being refined and put into our gas tanks and, and, and uh, home heating oil? Who knows? I'd like to know. Uh, before the war, the 2003 war, uh, Iraq was estimated to be the second largest oil producer in OPEC consortium uh-huh. and uh, to have 12% of the world's proven reserves. Um, that makes, makes uh, Iraq really uh, an oil mecca f- uh, for the world, and it was a huge producer and a low-cost producer, which is important. You can pump it out of the desert. But... Um, the uh, today there's there's an oil surplus, but one day there won't be. Right. That's the way what happens in the oil business, and oil will be short again, and people will start turning covetous eyes towards uh, Iraqi oil. And it's not it's not even for the United States to grab the, the oil; it's the U.S. That controls the oil, uh. and that oil goes to fuel Japan and Australia, and India, and China, and all kinds of places. And if we control the oil, we have great leverage over these countries. That's why it's so important. Fracking in the United States is made a, a temporary bonanza, but it's going to run out uh, fairly soon. And when people realize the negative uh, environmental yeah. consequences, it may be stopped even sooner. Ah, so we could go back to oil. It's always there. So good. Peak oil, right. <laughs> so good to know. Well, it used to be, in my lifetime, that American administrations, when accused, would strongly deny that we were shedding soldiers' blood for oil. You, you write... Wherever it may be, oil is as American as apple pie. Where did oil fit in, either openly or covertly, in the decision to invade and occupy Iraq? As, as I recall, I, they denied it. Nowadays, Trump says, you know, we're just going to protect the oil fields in Syria, period. No, no pretense about it. Uh, but, but what was the discussion back in 2003 when the American invasion happened? Did I- well, the, it was that uh, oil was a vital resource. America, again, had to protect oil from I don't know whom, um, not certainly from the Arabs, from the people who owned it, and uh, that uh, we were running out of oil. So uh, oil had a, a resonance. And also, a lot of the people in the Bush administration that launched the war were Texas oil men, starting with 
with Dick Cheney himself, uh-huh. uh, who had been president of Halliburton, the big oil company. So um, there was a sensitivity to oil, and there was also a lingering uh, understanding from World War II that the U.S. really won. One of the major reasons the U.S. won World War II was because it had oil, and its adversaries didn't. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this, and said, you know, when, uh, when Italy, Mussolini's Italy, agreed to join the war as a German ally, its only source of oil was Germany, since they took oil from Germany. How pathetic is that? <laughs> so, um, you know, America had the oil, Germany didn't right, have the oil, right. and uh, everybody remembered that and wanted to make sure that America retained its control or monopoly control of world oil. Oh, yeah, you think of uh, the Saharan Wars with uh, uh, Rommel and all those guys there and the British shedding a lot of blood uh, that was near where the oil was. And I, I've often wondered why Italy invaded Ethiopia in their 30s, I guess. I, I, maybe, I guess it, they didn't figure out that there was oil there. Maybe there wasn't oil there. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think it had been discovered. Yeah. They were just doing it to be uh, big stuffed shirts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can think of two people who fit that description. One of them is uh, Mussolini. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've been led to believe that ISIS, which is what al-Qaeda in Iraq evolved into, also depended on oil for financing its aggression. There remains a huge, slightly less world demand for oil, and it's always difficult to track money in corrupt regimes. I mean, that's one of their strengths is you don't know where who's got the money. Your article asks, so where did all the money go? What are some of the possibilities as to the answers to your question? Where did the money go? Like for ISIS, for example. It's a, key, it's a question I keep asking myself. Uh, is they're still pumping a hell of a lot of oil out of Iraq. The government controls it. But now American oil companies have moved in, and some British oil companies uh, that are actually doing the physical extraction. Where it goes, I don't know. I, ISIS, uh, which I believed all along was a, a phony creation of the Western powers and uh-huh. Turkey was uh, actually selling oil in, in, in trucks to Turkey. Right, so which, I heard. Which has no oil. That was a major source of ISIS's income. Uh, the, they had no other major customer for oil. And ISIS, in fact, was a pretty pipsqueak organization that lived more in the eyes of Western media right. than it did, did in fact. Yeah, you have to invent these guys if they don't exist. And curious how uh, fairly recently uh, Turkey has uh, turned on the uh, American uh, uh, helpers, uh, the the Kurds, who the Turks have always hated and made war on. Uh, That sort of uh, lends credence to the idea that maybe Turkey was behind whatever ISIS there was. What about Russia? I mean, oil is not just interesting to the U.S. and, and Britain. Russia as well. Do they have designs on Iraq as well? What is their interest, if any? Well, the Russians move at a much slower pace than we do. But uh, it's important to remember that uh, the the Middle East, and Iran, Iraq, uh, are uh, right next door to Turkey. They're as close to Turkey as Mexico is to the U.S. Right. And uh, the 
Russians actually occupied uh, Iran during World War II, something that's never talked about, with American help. Uh, so for the, this is the near abroad, uh, what the Russians call. And naturally they have an interest in this. As of today, there's a strong historical interest, which is important to Russians because they understand, they remember their history. Nice. Like us. Right. And uh, in the 19th century, Russia played a significant role in the region and presented itself as a defender of all the Middle East Christians, uh, a line that we're hearing repeatedly today. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, interesting how <clears throat> the Republicans who used to be, uh, you know, better dead than red are now uh, better Russian than Democrat. Uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> it is just incredible. Well, I wonder about, you know, actual U.S. interests, you know, how involved the oil companies, the American-based oil companies, may have been in plundering oil money. I mean, they've... I would guess they had to be somewhat secretive about it, but I don't know. What what do you know about you know actual U.S. Uh, direct business involvement in, in plundering the oil money, the oil and the money? I, I, I don't know very much. Um, well, that's probably intentional that, because, that way. Because, oh, yeah, it's very well hidden, but yeah. it all appears and disappears into this amorphous blob <laughs> of the oil industry. But I'm sure that there are secret agreements where ESSA, Exxon, all the big oil companies, Total from France, are extracting oil and selling it from Iraq. Now, where does the money go from this oil? We know it's being sold. It's going out on tankers. Uh, they, uh, they just don't, uh, we don't know. But it's going, obviously, into the pockets of the people who rule the Iraqi government. And I imagine the people of Iraq are starting to uh, recognize that. They're not dumb. I mean, I, I know Iran has a very huge population. Iraq is a lot smaller. I don't even know what the population is approximately. Of Iraq, Iraq. is probably in the 22, 23 million, uh -huh. I think. Uh -huh. It's, it's, it's hard to count them. They keep moving. And it's not small. Well, what about, I mean, there have been, through the years, as I understood it, which is not a whole heck of a lot, that there were three basic nations within what we call Iraq, the old Mesopotamia, uh, the Kurds, the, si the Shia, and the Sunni. Do they, how, where is that right now? Are they, and it used to be one minority, as you said earlier, that, that ruled over uh, the others. But what's the status of all of those three now? Can you give me three minutes, two-minute break? Yeah. Okay, hold on. All right. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking about Iraq, the forgotten Iraq, plundering Iraq. Eric Margolis, who's an award-winning internationally syndicated columnist whose articles have appeared in New York Times, International Herald Tribune. I don't know if that's still in existence. I used to love that paper. The LA Times, etc., etc. He's been in conflicts in Angola, Namibia, South Africa, Mozambique, etc., 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 Kashmir, India, Pakistan, uh, and he interviewed uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And uh, we're talking with him about uh, what is going on with Iraq these days. It is, uh, it's, it's, it's changing. The people of Iraq, it seems, are starting to say, hey, we don't like to be plundered anymore. And we're finding out more. I'm sorry, about this. and I'm back. Oh, good. He's back. 
Uh, so backing up just a little bit, I absolutely want to talk about what's going on now with the rebellion and all, but you you called the Cheney-Wolfowitz uh, uh, plan an imperial dream. What was that imperial dream, and what effects are we still seeing? And who was Wolfowitz, for those who may forget? Their dream was to, first of all, uh, make Iraq an, an American dependency. Ah. I think that's a pl- polite word for colony. Um, <laughs> and or under, put it under American control with a U.S.-appointed government and with a military whose top leaders would be answerable to the U.S. Uh, the United States Air Force would be based in Iraq wow. and would control the country from the sky, as the same thing that the British had done in the 1920s. The, uh, the American would then dominate the oil and would use Iraq as a military base uh, to operate all over the Middle East. And as I noted, that we just saw the first part of this as U.S. forces that went into Iraq's oil fields came from the garrison. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Syria's oil fields came from the Iraq garrison. Hmm. So they have some experience with that. So they wanted to take over the Middle East because there's oil there. Well, that, that's that's pretty swell. And for those who may have forgotten, who, who is Paul Wolfowitz? Power, too. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, also, not just oil, but uh, controlling the Middle East gave America enormous geopolitical power over the entire region and other parts of the world. Oh, true. Well, who, again, was Paul Wolfowitz, just in case there are some who may have Wolfowitz was a, either a deputy or an undersecretary, I can't remember, of defense in the Pentagon. And he was an arch-neocon uh, his primary passion in life was helping Israel, uh-huh. and uh, he assumed great importance in the defense establishment. And after 9-11, the, uh, all the neocons who had been lurking in the shadows suddenly came out, stepped forward, and just started beating the war drums. And they succeeded very well. They got America to destroy Iraq, which was uh, a major enemy of Israel. Today it uh-huh. is not... And Israel doesn't have to worry about Iraq uh, or an Iraqi nuclear weapon. Oh, interesting. Well, what about the role of Israel? I mean, they don't have, I I don't think they have any oil at all, which I imagine they wish they did. But uh, what's the role of of the current government of of the state of Israel with regard to uh, Iraq? And even though it's kind of a corrupt government what what's so they're they feel a lot safer now than they used to i guess under saddam hussein did he used to threaten israel at all uh, verbally for sure ah. but um in actuality iraq lacked the military means and was too far away to uh, threaten israel directly it was more that israel threatened iraq we remember that uh, israel uh, attacked and destroyed uh, an Iraqi nuclear ra- oh, reactor, right? right. Well, you, was that wiped it out? So, but the Israelis are uh, very happy now because uh, they don't have to worry about Iraqi military intervention on the air or the ground. They have knocked out Iraq completely. It's just a wreck. Wow. Uh, it won't be a military uh, factor for decades to come. 
uh, it has uh, feeble leadership that are really American pawns. Uh-huh. And uh, Israel has been able to reduce its defense spending by almost a third, wow. as I understand, hmm. because it doesn't now have to confront Iraq. Oh, interesting. Well, but the here, you know, as, as we've acknowledged that uh, Iraq has kind of dropped out of the news, it hasn't been in the headlines for a long time, and we will be talking as as we move along to to current uh, uh, protests and things like that. But what about hasn't the government? I got the impression. I'm sure it was intended that way. That the Iraqi government since 2003 has been fairly stable. Is that accurate or not? Well, uh, stable uh, economic crisis, rioting in the streets. Uh, uh, it's it's there. I think is more a better way of describing it than stable. Yeah. It has ro- has been rotating prime ministers that the Americans don't like. Put them in. Don't like them. Kick oh, them out. Right. Put somebody else in. And there's another less seen and quite nefarious role that's being played in Iraq by the Shia religious leadership, uh, Grand Ayatollah Sistani, who has played a very curious role all along. He's sort of uh, in league with the Americans. Uh, he's playing footsie with the Iranians. Uh, he, uh, he, he's, he's, his interests are Iran's Shias, uh-huh. not Iran as, as a nation. Uh, and he has been keeping the lid on the pot, you might want to say, but he's also been hindering the development of a really democratic, uh, self-interested Iraq. Hmm. And he's Shia, correct? He is the supreme Shia religious leader. Uh-huh. He's on a par uh, with uh, Grand Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So... I wonder how much of the population, I mean, as we've said, you know, there's, there's three different nations within the country of of Iraq. And as I understand it, when again, I may be wrong, that the Sunnis used to rule it and they were a minority. But now, is it the case that the Shias are in charge? That's right. That's right. The Shias are the majority. And they're, they're venting their rage and revenge on the Sunnis. Uh, who ruled, dominated Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Ah, that could get ugly. Well, the interests that promoted the invasion of Iraq argued that the people, of course, would come into the streets and throw roses at our troops on tanks, that we were liberating Iraq from a hated, corrupt, and brutal dictatorship. Fast forward to 2019, when, as you say, as of this writing, 120 Iraqis have been shot dead and some 6,000 wounded. Though it's not getting much attention these days, are we seeing the start of a civil war in Iraq? Was it predictable? Tell us about the uprisings, the various different sides. We have the majority Shias who are in control now uh, in certain areas, not of the entire country, but they are in the catbird seat. Right now, then you have the Sunnis who are sullen and resentful, uh, who miss the days of Saddam Hussein, who also were very influential in the Iraqi army. They uh, are sitting on the sidelines there, 
complaining and demanding that they get a cut of the pie, which they're not. They're the Kurds who are up in the mountains, uh, and they haven't changed at all their demand for an independent Kurdish state, though they have been quiescent of late. But that I don't think that will continue very long. So, And then we have Iran next door, which is kind of stirring the pot, uh, feels that Iraq is its rightful territory. And we have the Russians up north, who are not so far away. Their troops are in uh, in the region, and uh, they uh, have influence, and the Americans, so and the British. So it's the usual pot full of troubles being stirred by everyone. So what what is going on in the streets there? As, as you know, again, we we don't hear much about it. Uh, there's are they angry that there's a a corrupt regime? Are the the Shias, you know, angry at the at the Sunnis for? Uh, I mean, what what are they after? When did it start? Was there a trigger? Uh, it's been building up um, as the Shia try and take more power and wealth away from the uh-huh. Sunnis, uh-huh. Uh, and there are violent clashes in the streets. This has been going on for years. Really, we just didn't pay any attention to it, but now it's gotten worse because. Uh, the Iraqi U.S. installed Iraqi government, now seen as totally as a foreign puppet state, which is which is enriching itself at the cost of the public, and uh, people are just fed up with this, and they're fed up with Iraq being a terrible mess. You know, the utilities aren't working. There's no water. There's no power. The hospitals don't have medicine. Everything is broken down in Iraq, and it has never recovered from the war. And here is an immensely wealthy country, which rebuilding itself uh, into a modern state, it's not. It's going backwards. And certainly in the U.S., I'm old enough to remember when we had a large middle class. Really, I know it's hard to believe, but we did. And what about now Iraq? Is it like the U.S. and that there's a few very, very wealthy people and then there's everybody else? Or I, I, there, I yes. think, used to be a middle class. Tell us about economically. Well, there was a there was a small middle class. I used to do business there, I remember. And uh, I knew the traders and the retailers. And uh, they uh, there was a significant and growing middle class in Iraq uh, based on the oil economy. Uh, that all disappeared. Most of the entrepreneurs of the business class left Iraq because life there is intolerable. There's yeah. kidnapping, there's shooting in the streets, uh, illness everywhere, polluted water and food. Uh, it's become uh, unlivable. So all the most capable people have moved out. They've gone to Syria, they went to Lebanon. And that leaves us a large group of angry, poor people who are want to turn overturn the government. And I remember, you know, in previous wars, like Vietnam, the uh, large group of angry, poor people was our official enemy. And, of course, they eventually won, despite our huge military uh, advantage. Uh, is it, could it be the case that that it's, it's uniting? I mean, I know that, uh, you know, during the war in Vietnam, the best anti-war organizer was the guy making the war, Richard Nixon. He really pulled us together and inspired us and, and grew passion. Is it uh, possible now that the 
Shia, the Sunni, and the Kurds uh, may be united uh, in their uh, that they're against a common enemy. Could these disparate groups actually be united? And and is that happening there, or is that just a fantasy? I doubt it. No, I doubt it. There's <laughs> too much animosity and mistrust uh, between the groups, and even the Kurds have two different organizations that fight with each other. So uh, it's a long shot. We're not going to see anything looking like unity for a long time. And is the U.S. on top of this current situation? Are they, I mean, the State Department has been hollowed out, let's face it. Uh, do, do you think they're uh, paying attention to what's going on in the streets? Do they Do they feel like their puppet regime is, is threatened and uh, are they paying attention to it, and uh, are they choosing sides along the, uh, you know, during the with the uh, groups in the streets? Well, the um, the people who deal with it, like in the green zone and the uh-huh. little U.S. enclave in Baghdad, uh, with a monster embassy, they uh, deal with it on a day day to day basis. But imagine what kind of response they get in Washington when they call up and start talking about Shia groups. People's eyes glaze over, and nobody wants to hear about it, and least of all Mr. Trump. So uh, they, uh, there's very little response. It's yesterday's problem. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm laughing because it's like, what? How can they ignore this? But then again... Of course, they're ignoring it because they're, 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 everything's been hollowed out. There virtually is no State Department. I remember just on the eve of the Gulf War, I was convoked to come and have dinner with a group of very senior Republicans, and uh, they were and they said, "You know, Eric knows about Iraq. Ask questions." So they started asking uh-huh. questions, but uh, and I started answering. Say, "Well, you know, the Shiites, but then there are three different kinds of Shiites." And they're the Turkmen in the north, and they're the Kurds, and they're different, uh, two different Kurdish right. movements. After a while, their eyes started glazing over, and one of the Republican bigwigs turned to me and said, oh, that's too complicated. He said, just give us the bottom line. <laughs> well, I said, the bottom line is there is no bottom line. Right. It's going to be a huge mess that you're never going to resolve. Oh, great. A huge mess that there's never going to resolve. Whoa. So inspiring, I have to say. You write that before the U.S. invasion, Iraq led the Arab world in industry, farming, medicine, education, and women's rights. All that was destroyed by the, quote, liberation. What, what did this supposed liberation mean for the Iraqi people in terms of the economy and the infrastructure as well? I don't know how many people were killed. It was a disaster. Iraq was bombed back into the Stone Age, oh mercilessly bombed back. I mean, we, we even bombed the water systems. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, that alone should be a war crime. The sanitation system. Water pollution plants, you name it, we wrecked Iraq and we knocked it back to the point where it stays today. It's just in limbo. It's a wreck. And, uh, and a lot of Iraqis felt that they, they had deserved this fate because they were being too uppity. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> what do you mean you Arabs can have industry? How 
dare you think that you can have an independent foreign policy, uh, etc. No, 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 no. You've been taught a lesson. Taught a lesson. Yeah, we're the big boys in the block. We get to do what we want. And uh, it was so much fun to see all those fireworks going off uh, when it first started in 2003. And I, I remember being... A lot of us who had been in the you know anti-war movement back in the late 60s, uh, looking at it, thinking, wait a minute, we're not going to let this happen again, are we? And yet the 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 uh, voice for speaking out against the war, it was pretty crushed. We were, you know, really cowed into uh, accepting the war that was obviously to come. And and what did it do? I mean, how is Iraq surviving these days if they don't have industry and farming? Uh, how how are the how's the average person surviving, or, or is there just a lot more poverty now than there used to be? It's a good question. There is a little money that trickles down from oil. They grow dates, which they eat, right. uh, and uh, they they get by. But just it's 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 an ugly mess. <sighs> Why do we do that kind of thing? I don't know. Well, what about you know the British? We can't forget them. They basically created. Iraq out of the old uh, Mesopotamia, which was, you know, a bunch of tribes there. It was theirs for a long time, Iraq was. Do the Brits still have a finger in the Iraq pie? What, what is known about that? Or have they sort of walked away from it? Well, the British have retained a, a clever role in the area because they understand the politics, which we not, <laughs> and they know the right buttons to push in the area, and the British may sell arms. That's a very important business for England, is to sell arms to the region and uh, to intervene where necessary. We just learned the other day that a group of British SBS, Special Boat Service Commandos, were uh, caught in uh, northern Yemen fighting the government there. Uh, And so the British are quietly backing different sides, uh, and uh, being as an American sidekick, Britain is now allowed some crumbs off the great imperial table of the Middle East. <laughs> oh, that's how it should be, right? Uh, Britannia rules the world. You betcha. Jolly good, jolly good. <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live, and our guest is Eric Margolis whose recent article is titled simply Plundering Iraq. He's written a lot of stuff, been an international journalist in some real hot spots. I'm sort of surprised you're still alive, actually. But uh, (laughs) Thank you. A lot of people say that. Well, I'm I'm not on a lot of media that I used to do because I denied that there were ever weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You were right. And I got uh, booted off CNN and Fox News for that. Oh my! So uh, uh, it's—I'm not popular. <laughs> I'm uh, still can look at myself in the mirror in the morning. Well, that's good. It's—it's—it's uh, it's a risky business to be uh, correct, I suppose, and to have it right. Yeah, it's—you're quite right. You know, uh, people. Uh, what makes it so ri- risky is that the people who were dead wrong will never forgive you for having been correct. <laughs> Oh, that is so true. So many examples of that. Uh, pride. Sometimes pride goeth before the fall, but not always. They're still rather uh, proud. Now, our, go ahead. Our media 
and uh, senior political officers are filled with supporters of the Iraq war who, who propagated all these lies about Iraq, weapons of mass destruction and drones of death and all these other things. Uh, I, they shouldn't show their face in the light yeah. of day, but they do, and they crow away and they're saying back to the same thing now against Iran. Well, you got to have a, a real bad guy enemy, and propaganda, let's face it, is big. Propaganda got us into the First World War with a lot of lies, uh, you know, exaggerating German atrocities. And now, you know, as you say, ISIS was, was a creation. You got to have some bad guy to fight and, you know, stand up to. Just a little bit of macho involved with that for sure. Now, Trump, of course, in his infinite wisdom, being as smart as he so obviously is, pulled U.S. troops out of Syria and left our wartime allies, the Kurds, as sitting ducks to the Turkish military. Does Trump have a policy in Iraq? If so, any idea what it is, or is it just the same as the old ones? No, I, I think it's an ad hoc thing that he makes up every week. <laughs> he's, he's, got a, he's got a bunch of advisors who are either right-wing crazies uh, or else, uh, like the late, uh, the former Bolton, um, yeah. he has a very strong pro-Israeli yeah. uh, cadre there that's trying to advise him to do what's good for Israel, uh, like a war with Iran. And, and then, he's got, then he has people who don't know anything about the area who are offering advice. It's uh, the, the man knows nothing about the region himself, so it's very hard for them for there to be any consistent policy. And as you you noted, the State Department has been gutted, yeah. and the reason it's been gutted, its senior ranks have been cut, is because all those people were regarded as Arabists, uh, and they were somehow pro-Arab, which they really weren't, but they. Uh, were regarded as such and were marked for elimination, and that's happened. So it's left the, Mr. Pompeo as the grand wizard of foreign policy. <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's fun to listen to, uh, like Bill Barr. But uh, Iran, they're being painted as the real bad guys now, and, you know, it seems like it seems like we're trying to pick a fight with them, like almost on a daily basis. Oh, we are finding this or that. So where where do where does the U.S. stand with Iran? Is I mean, who knows if we're going to go to war with Iran? And where does Iraq stand? And and like between the U.S. and Iran, are they just on the sidelines? Iraq is cowering and hoping it doesn't <laughs> get caught in between the town. Two parts. I have to go soon. So uh, let me say about Iran, though that uh, the Iranians are really afraid they're going to get bombed. We're, we're looking at 23,000 potential targets of the initial airstrikes against Iran. Uh, Iran will be bombed back to the Stone Age, as was Iraq. Yeah, we're good uh, at that. And hopefully that'll put them out of business for a long, long time. Uh, the Iranian radicals, the hardliners in Iran, are saying, come on and invade us, Americans. Come in and fight us hand-to-hand, and we'll defeat you. Uh, the Americans don't want to do that. It's not our way of war. So uh, no. it's a delicate situation. I just got to ask one, one last thing. This new civil strife that's, that's building and building and building in Iraq, might there be a group or collection of groups 
indigenous to Iraq, which might be organizing to take over Iraq for the benefit of its own people. Is that possible, or is there too divided? Good question. Um, it is possible, but um, it, it, the, the, the people who would do that would be the Shia majority, but they are so disorganized themselves and hamstrung by this sort of uh, uh, nebulous leadership of, his, of Ayatollah Sistani that uh, they, they cooperate too much with the invaders. Uh, so it's unsure. But in my view, what's more likely is that in another Al-Qaeda type of organization, but a real one this time, is going to rise up, like Zarqawi's original group, uh, to fight the Americans and their Iraqi um, cooperators. Uh, that, I think, is probably very likely. Interesting. I don't know if there are any people in Washington in Congress who seem to have a handle on, on realities in Iraq. Any clue on that? No, none do. <laughs> um, you know, the used car salesmen who we have sent to Congress uh, have very little knowledge of the area and uh, listen only to the lobbyists when they come in. Of course. So I wouldn't count for anything on Congress. Well, what can average Americans do if they don't really want, you know, war in Iran? If, you know, they, they're thinking, hey, you know, it's time we kind of stop messing around in other people's business. A any particular organizations or any suggestions? I like to, you know, leave with a, a little bit of hope for something people can actually do. Get on the line with your congressman and say no more wars in the Mideast. No war with Iran. Uh, pull our troops out of the region. What the hell are we doing there? Uh, yeah, it doesn't do us any good. That's what we want. Just pull out, get ourselves out of this mess that we will never be able to understand. And even the locals don't understand <laughs> it half the time. True. Well, if people want to read more about your stuff, uh, Eric Margolis, what would you suggest? Some website, I oh, imagine? They may refer to my uh, column online, which is a good spot, which is uh, Eric, uh, E-R-I-C-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S dot com. I think that's my email. Uh, or website. at Lou, uh, Lou com, which is a very good libertarian site. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point that maybe libertarians can get behind this too, because I, I do think there's a lot people in America, not just traditional lefty types who feel like, you know, we're not supposed to be the world's policemen, you know, so hopefully we can... We're the world's, we're the world's imperial ruler. We, we moan about how we have to police the whole world, poor us, <laughs> but in fact we are, uh, we're doing it for our own imperial interests and uh, not doing it very well. Not doing it very well, but somebody's making a lot of money out of it. Thank you so much for being with us, Eric Margolis, and uh, perhaps Thanks we'll talk again. Into intelligence and useful questions. Much appreciated. All right, Cheerio. thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheerio indeed. Blood for Oil, Brandon Jenkins, New Country. Welcome down to this country, it's a crying shame. Blowing through the money like crack cocaine. Like a junkie trying to find a vein Since we started trading blood for all Well you know that we 
been off track long before we hit Iraq. Trying to run the world with a monkey on a back, and now I'm trading blood for all. Sons and daughters, make them human shields, make them cannon fodder. Hell yeah, I'm gonna trade the blood for all. Oh, GW don't give a fuck, he just drives around his ranch in his pickup truck. His daddy's boys done hooked him up since he started trading blood for all. Trying to figure out where all the money went We ain't broke, but we're badly bent From trading all this blood for all We took advantage of the situation Desperate times of a desperate nation Slap a new face on the corporation We're still trading blood for all Right.